Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. What's the story with Toby Fleischman and his crumbling marriage? Taffy Brodesser Ackner will join us to talk about her debut and best-selling novel, Fleischman is in Trouble. Is there something we should all know about the cheap generic drugs our doctors are prescribing? Catherine Eben will be here to talk about her new book, Bottle of Lies. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Taffy Brodesser Ackner joins us now. She is a staff writer at The New York Times Magazine, writes for culture, writes everywhere around The Times, and has also written her first novel, Fleischman is in Trouble. Hey, Taffy. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Pamela. Did you always want to write a novel? Is this secretly your ambition and you're just like journalism is your day job? It was not secretly my ambition. It was boldly my ambition. And I was not good at it. And I was not good at screenwriting. And then I fell into journalism in a weird way. I worked at a soap opera magazine. And was it Soap Opera Digest? No. It was like not even Soap Opera Digest? Okay, Pamela, <laughs> you're you're just showing your ignorance now because Soap Opera Digest was not the best of the soap opera magazines. It was just the easiest to see on stands because of, you know, shenanigans with placement. I worked at Soaps in Depth magazine, which you had to say that way because if you called someone up and you said, I'm from Soaps in Depth magazine... They'd say soaps in depth, and you'd have to say <laughs> no, soaps in depth. Yeah, it's really hard to pronounce. It's so hard. But then I was poached by a larger soap opera magazine, and I do mean a larger one. It was about 10 and a half by 14 inches, and it was the big soap opera magazine, literally the big soap opera. What well, was it? It was called Soap Opera Weekly. And it was owned by the same people who owned The Digest. We were called The Weekly, and they were called The Digest, in the same way that women on the Paula Dean cruise had recognized me from writing for The Journal, which made no sense to me until I realized they were talking about Ladies Home Journal. Okay, so you had to, I assume, watch many soap operas in order to report on the soap opera world? Yes. I Well, there was no reporting. You were given the news by publicists on Thursday via fax. But I had to watch all the soap operas. And the reason the soap opera period was important to me is because— An integral part it of was the Taffy Brodesser Ackner story. It was. It was. is because— when I was in film school, they would teach us this very sort of staid and trite approach to screenwriting, a protagonist who has six flaws, and they're all revealed by page 10. And by page 30, he meets a woman, and in the end, he changes. And I was writing screenplays like that, and they weren't very good. And then I was at the soap opera magazine, and I saw why they weren't very good. And that's because it's not very interesting for people to be good or evil. And that's basically what we had on the soap operas. We had good people. We had evil people. Sometimes you would take a good person and give them an evil twin. Yeah. There was always some menace who just couldn't be redeemed. And that's when I realized that that's not that interesting. And that's why people weren't really watching soap operas that much anymore, because there were these new shows with nuance and with complicated characters. And then I went into other journalism, right? Mm -hmm. Like I went into to what we do now. And I started writing profiles. And when I wrote profiles, I learned that 
readers are actually very comfortable with people who are contradictions, people who are good and bad, people who cannot excuse themselves from their poor behavior but still feel redeemed by their own goodness. And that's when I realized that a reader can handle that. And that's when I started, I think, writing things fiction things when I could finally bring that ethic to it, that a person doesn't have to be good or bad. Most of all, a person doesn't have to change because even though that's what I was taught in film school, that your character changes, I actually don't know people who have ever changed. And the reader reacts mostly from what I can tell to the truth, to somebody being two things as opposed to somebody being one thing. But that's such a truth or considered a truth about fiction, about storytelling, that people change, that your character changes over time. I wrote a lot of personal essays, Mm -hmm. and there was this idea that you had to have resolved the issue by the time you get to the end of the personal essay, but that's not the truth. Right. So you have to have resolved the thing, and how can who resolves their thing? You haven't resolved your thing? I've never resolved my thing. I have like 47 body image essays out there, and I could write 3,000 more. (laughs) I've never resolved the thing. I have family things. I have all these things. And I think that people don't change. I think the work is in like perspective shifts. Mm -hmm. but, uh, But wherever you go, there you are. The thing in this novel, I think, for you, although tell me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. is divorce. Mm -hmm. You wrote a book about Toby Fleischman, who is divorced or getting divorced at the beginning of the Mm -hmm. book. And this came from personal experience as well. Why did you want to write about divorce? You thought the novel would resolve the thing? No, I didn't. I didn't think I was writing about divorce. I thought I was writing a book about dating and how interesting dating is now through apps for people our age who did not have apps when they were younger and when they were dating during the first round. And now it's a completely different thing. And I thought it would be so interesting to talk about modern dating through the lens of someone who used to have to show up in their disgusting human form at a party, at a bar, at a singles event at the 92nd Street, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that because I was doing this, you had to have talk about the marriage, right? Why had you not been dating all along? Well, because you were married. Why are you dating now? Because you're divorced. And then once I realized it was a divorce book, I was like, oh, you idiot. It's a divorce book. And then I looked at the pages I had and it it had always been a divorce book. Here I'll evoke Bradley Cooper, who said to me that A Star is Born came from the, our colleague Sopan Deb likes to make fun of me for this, the wound of being human. And I guess maybe like my parents divorced. I'm very intolerant of people who who bring their childhood issues throughout their lives. But I guess this is what I was doing. I think my parents' divorce was such a wreck to me. And I thought it was fine. I thought it was just regular. I mean, so many people have parents who are divorced. But I think when suddenly I had been married for 13 years mm-hmm. and my parents, their marriage ended after 13 years. And I was in this territory of like this kind of unknown, that's when I felt like I was able to write about it. How old were you when they divorced? Six. Okay. And I'm 43 now. But you still haven't gotten over it. (laughs) Apparently not. I mean, read this. You just mentioned Bradley Cooper, and so I, I, I need to bring up your profile writing and how that also may have contributed to yes. your understanding of character. Because when you were profiling a celebrity mm-hmm. like Gwyneth Paltrow, very famously, and Bradley Cooper, who didn't really want to play ball with you, you're dealing with people who are, in a way, trying to 
hide their character from you right. or trying to present a very particular side of the character to you. I mean, does that teach you any kind of lesson about how to build a character from the ground up in fiction? Not as much. What it teaches me about is subtext. What all the profiles taught me about is not people who want to be known, but what people say when they want you to know a version of themselves that isn't the truth. Mm -hmm. So it taught me a lot about how people talk about themselves and how deluded we all are. And what we say instead of the truth to kind of remove the suspicion that we're lying. A thing I always think in profiles, which is why fact-checking generally goes both so easily and so terribly for me, is because I don't ever really believe anything that anybody says. Instead, I ask, why was that the answer to the question? Mm Because they know who I am. No one's ever lulled into thinking that there's not a tape recorder there. And then you have to kind of honor, what are they trying to say to me? What do they want the world to know? And if you do that, then you look at what everyone says to you through the prism of what is it that they want to be known as. And that's what we're all doing all the time. We're all constantly being interviewed for our celebrity profile. (laughs) (laughs) And now you actually are being interviewed. But for people who are not writers, they might look at someone like you and say, okay, well, she's a journalist, she's writing profiles, and then she's writing fiction, and, you know, it's all writing. But for people who write, who are, say, journalists, Mm -hmm. journalism and fiction writing, novel writing, it's like... Brickling and carpentry. They're related trades, but they are totally different. Totally different, especially since it's more like it's typing, right? Like that's the thing it has in common is that there's typing. Keyboarding. Keyboarding. Sorry, I forgot. (laughs) I'm I'm a keyboarder. (laughs) What is interesting to me is that the first draft of this book was not what ended up being this book, mostly because the thing I'm good at as a journalist, from what I understand, because whoever knows what they're good at until they're told by other people. Right. Um, Until you get a starred review. Until you get a starred review. You don't even know if you did it, which is its own weird thing. But I'm good at observing. And so what happens if you create characters out of nothing? Mm -hmm. How do you observe them? That was this mental aerobic thing that was hard for me every day. It was balanced by the pleasure of not being obligated to anybody or worried that they would hate me, even though they all, you know, like, I can't worry that they'll hate me. I don't work for them, but it's still not a great feeling. Or the fact that the wear and tear of my job is mostly that I form these very intimate relationships with people that are very short-lived. And I'm going on 10 years doing this, and I don't know if I'm that close to my friends as I am in the few weeks where I'm doing a profile with someone. I don't know if I'm listening as well to my husband, but I do know that I'm good at observing, and I could watch your face, and I could write about your face. And these people don't exist, and how am I supposed to observe them? And that was the very, very hard part for me. I'm now imagining Toby Fleischman, the main character Mm -hmm. of Fleischman is in trouble, Writing an angry letter to the editor about the way that you have observed him and betrayed him. <laughs> or telling my fact checker that I made it all up. That's, that's usually right. That's more of what nobody writes letters to the editor. They have the publicist assassinate you. Did you find it freeing to be untethered from the facts or terrifying? Or? Terrifying because if what I said before is true, that people's surprising contradictions are the thing of truth, how do you make that up? It's mm-hmm. so magical. Like, it's so magical to me that I am someone who 
is disgusted by people smoking on the streets and yet sometimes has a cigarette. Mm -hmm. Like I'll cross the street with a sneer and also I will buy a pack of cigarettes. Right. That's me. It's like the pedestrian driver. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You are on the side that you are on in the moment. Exactly. I didn't know that there was a word for it. I wish I knew that instead of outing myself as someone who sometimes smoked. <laughs> Next time you can use the pedestrian. Thank you. I appreciate well, it. I made that up. Le- so I'm always learning. Not, not. No, let's trademark it. Let's go talk right. to legal after if this. anyone else uses it, you have to pay. <laughs> um, would you read from for us from the beginning of the novel, and then we'll talk about where it goes from there. Sure. Toby Fleischman awoke one morning inside the city he'd lived in all his adult life and which was suddenly somehow now crawling with women who wanted him. Not just any women, but women who were self-actualized and independent and knew what they wanted. Women who weren't needy or insecure or self-doubting, like the long-ago prospects of his long-gone youth. Meaning the women he had thought of as prospects, but who had never given him even a first glance. No, these were women who were motivated and available and interesting and interested and exciting and excited. These were women who would not so much wait for you to call them one or two or three socially acceptable days after you met them, as much as send you pictures of their genitals the day before. Women who were open-minded and up for anything and vocal about their desires and needs and who used phrases like, put my cards on the table and no strings attached and I need to be done in 10 because I have to pick up Bella from ballet. Women who would have sex with you like they owed you money was how our friend Seth put it. Yes, who could have predicted that Toby Fleischman at the age of 41 would find that his phone was aglow from sunup to sundown in the night the glow was extra bright? with texts that contained G-string and ass cleavage and underboob and side boob and just straight up boob and all the parts of a woman he never dared dream he would encounter in a person who was three-dimensional, meaning literally three-dimensional, as in a person who wasn't on a page or a computer screen. All this after a youth full of romantic rejection. All this after putting a lifetime bet on one woman. Who could have predicted this? Who could have predicted that there was such life in him yet? Still, he told me, it was jarring. Rachel was gone now, and her goneness was so incongruous to what had been his plan. It wasn't that he still wanted her. He absolutely did not want her. He absolutely did not wish she were still with him. It was that he had spent so long waiting out the fumes of the marriage and busying himself with the paperwork necessary to extricate himself from it, telling the kids, moving out, telling his colleagues, that he had not considered what life might be like on the other side of it. He understood divorce in a macro way, of course, but he had not yet adjusted to it in a micro way, in the other side of the bed being empty way, in the nobody to tell you were running late way, in the you belong to no one way. How long was it before he could look at the pictures of women on his phone, pictures the women had sent him eagerly and of their own volition, straight on instead of out of the corner of his eye? Okay, sooner than he thought, but not immediately. Certainly not immediately. That was excellent. Thank you. That's just the very beginning. Okay, so in that first page and a half, you introduced to us three characters, Toby Fleischman, Mm -hmm. his to-be ex-wife, Rachel, and our narrator. Yes. Tell me a little bit about those three people and where the novel goes from there. So Toby is our main character, and he's getting his divorce, and they have a custody arrangement. And a minute after this happens, 
he finds that his wife, his ex-wife, Rachel, has dropped the kids off in his apartment so that she could go to Kripalu for the weekend. It's his weekend, but his weekend isn't supposed to start till tomorrow morning. And he gets very, very angry. And then Monday comes and she doesn't pick them up which is typical for her because she works so hard. She is the head of an agency, and she has always been doing that. I'm just staying an extra day. I just need to get some work done. And then Tuesday comes and Wednesday comes, and she doesn't return. And he doesn't know what happened to her. The narrator is a woman who used to work at a men's magazine. Mm. (laughs) Taffy used to work at GQ. And just saying. Just saying. And who lives in New Jersey hmm. with her husband and two children and who hears about his divorce and is kind of lit on fire about the fact that as she turned 40, she had just started feeling old and now watching him realizing that she's actually quite young, that she is young enough to still have another life, even though she's perfectly content. And there's another character, another main character, Seth, another friend from their youth, a finance bro who knew them in college. And they represent sort of different points of view on marriage. Mm -hmm. Toby being someone whose marriage didn't work out. Seth being someone who has not yet gotten married. And Libby, the narrator, being somebody who just is in her marriage, in the kind of middle-aged part of her marriage. See, even just in this, I can see your journalism mind at work, right? (laughs) Because you had, as I understand it, been contemplating writing a story about divorce and about trends in divorce. And right here, you're kind of presenting some of the really interesting aspects of divorce right now and also just divorce eternally. In particular, it seems to me, the way that divorce is not just something that happens to two people, but something that sort of reverberates outward. It's a kind of social phenomenon And becomes contagious and affects the children forever and all of that. Yes, I wanted to write this as an article. When my friends first started coming to me, when I turned 40, telling me that they were getting divorced, I thought it would be a great GQ article. Again, I thought it was going to be about the dating. And my editor... About the post-divorce dating. The post-divorce dating, which is like all app-based now. Mm -hmm. And my editor said to me, that sounds like a great story that I would love to read somewhere else. But the GQ reader will not even understand what you're talking about. Like, they've never not had apps. And, you know, there was always a danger of me in my 40s in the suburbs working at GQ and being somewhat out of touch. And I guess right. that was one of those moments. Right. You would have to be a historical yeah. document in some <laughs> right. academic textbook. The oral history somewhere. of the time I found out that people weren't dating that way anymore. One other thing that you explore in this book really is money and money in particular in the sort of New York I mean, was this also, I assume, on your mind? Because Toby Wright is a doctor who makes around $200,000 a year or $300,000 Almost $300,000, yeah. Okay, not a bad salary, but in this book, in this world, not enough. He's broke. He's broke. He is like, people feel bad for him and ask him all the time, his friends on the Upper East Side or his kids' friends' parents say things like, if your kids came to you and said they wanted to be a doctor, what would you think? 
And it only occurs to him later that that it's it's like when people say to me, if your kids wanted to be a journalist, <laughs> what would you do? There's no money in it. It might disappear in the way we know it now mm-hmm. in a generation. But yeah, I'm obsessed with money. When I was writing this, I was still a freelancer. That would obsess one with money. That obsessed me with money. And it, there came a point where I was so greatly in demand and naming my rate and still broke. And I thought, what is it like if you can be successful at something and still be broke, then then money is broken. So I know mm-hmm. that you are actually working on a second novel already, I which am. is very exciting. We won't talk about that. What I do want to ask you is, having written this novel, what did you enjoy most about novel writing that you couldn't get out of journalism? And what are you kind of relieved to go back to in terms of the New York Times and, and writing stories here? Okay. So the thing I loved about writing the novel is that I had actual bodily pleasure at the idea that I did not have to summon any kind of decency because I wasn't dealing with real people. And I'm a believer in decency. This past weekend, my book came out on Tuesday, but the weekend before I was I was on a story and I was in a hotel far away from home and I was observing the thing I had to observe and I had this huge moment of relief because I'd been doing so much press and I you know you always worry that you talk about writing so much that you're actually not a writer anymore you're just someone who talks about writing right and sitting there and observing again and taking notes and knowing what my lead would be I cannot wait to get back to that that predictability (laughs) I know I can't wait to like know how it goes to know that it'll only take a week to write to get back with my editors I'm so excited about it. Well, listeners of this podcast, No Taffy is an occasional guest here on our What We're Reading segment and is always my colleague here, at least for the time being at the New York Times, (laughs) but for the moment is a novelist. And her new novel is called Fleischman is in Trouble. It's getting great reviews. Taffy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with the New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. 
So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Joining us now, my colleague over at PBS NewsHour, our partner on Now Read This, the book club that is run in conjunction with the PBS NewsHour and the New York Times Book Review, Elizabeth Flock. Liz, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So we are ready to announce our July pick for Now Read This. Why don't you do the honors? July's pick is The House of Broken Angels by Luis Alberto Urea. And Urea was a previous guest here on the podcast for this novel. This book came out last year in hardcover, correct? And now is available in paperback. Talk a little bit about why we chose this book for July. Well, readers may already be acquainted with Urea. He's written a number of books, his most famous being the 2004 nonfiction book, The Devil's Highway which was about a group of Mexican immigrants sort of hopelessly lost in a desert region in Arizona, was a finalist for the Pulitzer. This book, The House of Broken Angels, is Urea coming back now in 2019 with sort of a tremendous novel about one Mexican-American family living on the border who come together for a party and a funeral. And it's tender and funny and sad, And I think it's extremely timely as well as we sort of grapple with pretty urgent questions Mm -hmm. about how this country (laughs) treats immigrant families. So I think this book this month is extremely important. One of the things Urea talked about when he was on the podcast was that he wanted to write a a big family epic. And he has a great backstory and personal angle here with this book. But also that, and I think this is reflected in a lot of his body of work, which ranges, as you said, from poetry to fiction to nonfiction, He wants to portray a kind of Mexican-American society and culture that is not often reflected in the larger popular culture in many ways. That that it's just sort of there, there are so many slices of this very diverse experience in this country that don't necessarily make it into pop culture or into newspapers. And he wants to reflect that world, the world that he sees. Right. And this book... You know, it happens sort of like a family reunion. And so different characters are weaving in and out of the novel. And we see, you know, one of them is a kid in a metal band. and Another one is a veteran struggling with addiction. And so it's just sort of this really layered book about this Mexican-American family that spans different ages and backgrounds. And it gets at how complicated the Mexican-American experience can be, but also just how complicated family can be. And he's really good at voice. He's really good at voice and at character. And I think that both of those come across in this novel. And you expect it to be sad as well because it's a book about the border. It's a book about a funeral. But instead, it's it's sad, but it's also really funny. Yes. And I think that's one of the things that Urea does really well. Yeah, there's a lot of humor and joy. We didn't want to completely depress people in the month of July. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can Summer. still bring this book to the beach and be happy. Absolutely. So tell everyone where they can go to submit questions of other members of the club and also perhaps questions for Urea, the author himself, when he goes on the news hour to talk about this book. Now read this. Our book club primarily lives on Facebook. We have a Facebook group 
of about 65,000 members where you can read along together, discuss the book, submit your questions for the author, debate. It's a really great community. So you can find us online at Facebook if you just look up Now Read This. Well, we look forward to hearing everyone's questions, hearing what you think of the book. And Liz, we will have you back at the end of July to talk about what's coming in August. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much. Catherine Eban joins us now in the studio. She is an investigative journalist, the author previously of the book Dangerous Doses, A True Story of Cops, Counterfeiters, and the Contamination of America's Drug Supply. And her new book is called Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's start by defining what we mean by a generic drug, because I think that's a term that kind of confuses people. People think, is that the Walgreens? Is that a Duane Reed? Like, what is a generic drug? A generic drug is a version of a brand name drug that is made after the patent lapses or is successfully challenged in court. But I think the, the confusion is that it is not an identical copy. And the FDA recognizes that you can't make an identical copy. What you make is a drug that has the same active ingredient and where the absorption into the blood falls within a range. So it is a version that is supposed to work similarly in the body. And then there might be other inactive ingredients and there are sort of who knows what. Right. And those might be different. So you have what are called excipients. Those are the additional ingredients. They may be different from the brand name drug. Also, the time release mechanism, if the drug has one, maybe a different mechanism than the brand name drug uses. And are there differences for that with over-the-counter versus prescription drugs in terms of like what the regulations and definitions are, or is it sort of the same? Any drug product, whether over-the-counter or prescription that is sold into the U.S. market, is supposed to be manufactured using good manufacturing practices. And those are codified in federal regulations and Obviously, the more sensitive the drug, the more highly regulated and specific up to sterile drugs, which are, you know, incredibly sensitive and have to be made under very strict aseptic conditions. The spiel that I think all of us get when we go to the doctor, and it's very persuasive, is they prescribe you a drug, usually by the brand name. When you get to the pharmacy, it's actually fulfilled as a generic, unless I think they specify that it must be that brand name. And what the doctor will say to you is, it's the same exact thing, but it's going to be cheaper. How true is that? That actually isn't true. I mean, that is one of the things that my reporting has really made clear. They're not identical. They don't work the same in the body. The best generic drugs, and some are good, some are effective, are close. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that many are made in distant manufacturing plants where there are profound manipulations and falsifications, and those are resulting in the release of substandard drugs. I mean, one of the assumptions that people have about illegal drugs that frightens people off from, say, trying this or that club drug is, well, you have no idea what's in there. You have no idea what's in there. It's not like it comes with an ingredient list. You don't know who cooked this thing up or where. I mean, could the same thing be said of prescription drugs? There is no ingredient list. All you see is the name of the drug, whether it's a generic drug or a brand name drug. 
So the active ingredient is required to be the same, and that's the component of the drug that makes it work Mm -hmm. medically. And then companies are supposed to select from a group of excipients, additional ingredients that are regarded as safe. And the FDA likes to cite their regulations, right, which require the companies to behave in a certain way. But my question when I started reporting this book was, well, that's on paper. So what is actually going on in these manufacturing plants? And is that resulting in a drug that is different and where those differences are not reflected right. on the label, in official documents that are being approved by the FDA. As we know, with any kind of governmental department, whether it's regulation or taxes, there's sort of what's on paper and then what's actually done. And it may be a question of poorly written or vague laws or terrible enforcement or underfunding What is the actual enforcement of the FDA rules on these kinds of drugs? What the FDA says is they have the same inspection system for domestic manufacturers and overseas manufacturers because actually the majority of our generic drugs are now manufactured overseas in India and China. So the FDA is saying everybody's playing by the same set of rules. What is it, like 80 percent? The majority of our generic drugs are manufactured overseas Forty percent of those drugs alone are coming from India. Eighty percent of the active ingredient for all our drugs, whether brand or generic, are made overseas, with the majority being made in India and China. So basically, as one drug importer said to me, you know, without these drug products from overseas, not a single drug could be made. We're completely reliant. And so if you have a factory in India or in China and the FDA is saying, you know, the same oversight occurs. What is that oversight? Is it actually on site in the factories, people there? How effective is it? First of all, to get a generic drug approved, you have to submit what's called an abbreviated new drug application to the FDA. That's all the data, which is sort of the cornerstone of how you manufacture drugs. It's data that proves it's bioequivalent, it acts the same in the body, it dissolves correctly, and that's a sort of minute-by-minute data that you have collected in the manufacture of the drug. So there's the data, which the FDA reviews, and then there are the inspections. So if you're a company overseas, you want to make a new drug, you're probably going to be subject to a pre-approval inspection by the FDA. But here's the huge difference. Domestically, the FDA, their investigators show up unannounced and stay as long as needed. Overseas, the FDA, because of the difficulty with logistics, announces its inspections in advance. Right. And it gives these companies weeks and sometimes months of advance notice. To give the official factory tour. That is right. And so what my sources have really clearly exposed to me is that those inspections are staged. They will bring in data fabrication teams to invent data, shred data, invent documents and steam them so they look old. I mean, the fabrications are just astounding. I mean, the other thing that's a little bit frightening is to think about the fact that these drugs, these generic drugs, the attraction to the consumer, the attraction is in low prices. So clearly they are trying to get the costs down as much as possible, which then makes you wonder What exactly is getting mixed in here? What are the workers being paid? And what kind of corruption might be involved in these countries in particular? How bad is it? It is seriously bad. I mean, you have 
plants that are in the middle of nowhere recruiting illiterate farmers who have no, you know, biotechnology experience who are supposed to be testing drugs. They don't have sterile facilities necessarily. There are bathrooms with toilets that lack drainage piping. There are bird infestations, snakes, lizards, and then there's six to eight weeks of advance notice from the FDA that they're coming. How did you get a look into these places? Did you ever go on site yourself or did any of your whistleblowers sort of surreptitiously photograph and make videos? Like, How do you know about the, the sort of conditions? First of all, there were a number of whistleblowers who cooperated with me for this book. So I got internal company records. Mm -hmm. I got photographs. I did get some video. I got emails, that kind of thing. But believe it or not, a lot of this is in FDA inspection records. I mean, it's right there in black and white. So if somebody fails their FDA inspection, I mean, what are the repercussions? Do they pay a fine? Are they given a warning? But do they get to sort of go back to business as usual until the next inspection? What are the results of getting in trouble with the FDA? That's also part of the problem, which is there is a sort of gradation of trouble that these plants get in. And in a huge number of instances, investigators for the FDA have gone in and said this plant is so bad that it should be what's called official action indicated, which means the plant has to make immediate changes or face an import alert, a warning letter, which means like we're going to restrict these drugs from coming into the U.S. But bureaucrats back in Maryland at FDA headquarters are downgrading those recommended sanctions down to voluntary action indicated, which means, yeah, you've got to fix this, but you can fix this and you're kind of off the hook. Why are they doing that? Well, I think part of the reason is there is no plan B for our drug supply. You know, we can't afford brand name drug prices. There is consumer outrage about that. There is political pressure to make more low-cost drugs available. There are drug shortages as it is. So I think those are all part of the reasons. Another reason is that some of the people who are making the decisions about downgrades end up going to work for the generic drug industry. So it's like the lobbyist uh, congressman right. kind of thing right. where you so have it's people a cycling in. Yeah. Who is making money off of generic drugs? I mean, we think about the big pharmaceutical companies. You're saying that the brand names are too expensive. Do those same pharmaceutical companies, like they own the brand names, who owns these generic names or do they own both? Sometimes they own both. Sometimes these are just foreign-owned companies that are, you know, based headquartered in India or headquartered in China. And basically, they want to get into our market, which is the largest and most profitable. So if nothing else, you would think that the big pharmaceutical companies, which have lots of lobbying money, would be pushing the government to crack down on these generics, which are cutting into their profits. Do they do that? They do that in a kind of subtle way, but it's not so explicit and it's not as out there as people would think. Like, for example, in the 10 years I've been reporting on this, I have never gotten some sort of back-channel help from the brand-name companies. They're a little bit allergic to this whole topic and, you know, 
they're not exempt from these set of problems. I mean, they're getting active ingredient from plants overseas. In some cases, they own generic drug companies, as you point out. So, I mean, with the sort of globalization of our drug supply, this, you know, interchange and interlinking between brand and generic, it's not like there are these just clear distinctions between these industries. Well, we know that a lot of Americans are very suspicious about what's in their food, what, you know, whether it's the fears around GMO or things not being organic or unidentified ingredients. You would think that, I mean, and and some people are just sort of have thrown up their hands and said, I don't know what's in there. And a similar outcry over prescription or over-the-counter drugs. Why do you think that is? I think a couple of reasons. One is There's not a lot of consumer choice here. I mean, if you figure out that factory farms are the source of all evil, you can buy your meat organic from small family-owned farms. What are your options with pharmaceuticals? You know, the insurance companies are pushing us all into generic. So they won't cover the brand name. Right. So you can't, as a consumer, say to your doctor, I only want this kind of drug unless you want to pay out of pocket. That's right. Because most of the time your insurance won't cover it. So then what are your other options? Well, and I've been since the book came out, I've been deluged with emails from patients asking what to do. But you can switch between generic manufacturers, which I do all the time. How do you figure out who's good and who's bad? So, you know, this is just a tremendously complicated thing. And on top of that, we have our regulators telling us that there's no difference. And that's one of the reasons I think that patients go to the pharmacy. They don't even look at the dispensing label. They don't know who made their drugs. You know, but there was an FDA consultant who said to me, you know, anyone who buys cheddar cheese understands there's a quality distinction between Velveeta, Kraft, and artisanal cheddar. But, like, there is a Velveeta of drugs, and most of us are getting it. And there's no way to know. There's often no way to know. I'm advising patients now who are contacting me that they can actually do a little research on these companies. Have they gotten warning letters? You know, are they in trouble with the FDA? And also, have they felt like their drugs aren't working or they have side effects once they're switched? Those are all things to pay attention to. It's not just in their head. I want to talk about those potential side effects. But just another question about the brand name drugs, because if the insurance companies aren't paying for it. Who's getting those? We know those pharmaceutical companies are doing very well. Who's getting those brand name drugs? Is it just the very, very wealthy who don't need to worry about things like health insurance? Well, you know, in a lot of instances, brand name drugs are just no longer made. If the drug is old, then the pharmaceutical company has just walked away from that drug. So the only choice Give is Give us a some, some examples of drugs you can't even get anymore. Well, certain antibiotics, for Mm -hmm. example. I mean, those are really almost all generic. If you go to a pharmacy and your kid has an ear infection and you go to get an antibiotic, almost 100% guaranteed that drug is made overseas. It's going to be coming from India or China. You know, it's the low-cost producers that are making antibiotics because there's just no profit in it anymore. So people might say, going back to your Velveeta example, well, you know, I know Velveeta isn't the greatest thing for me. But I can't afford artisanal cheese, and Velveeta tastes pretty good. But what are the risks of of saying, I'm okay with getting this cheap generic drug? I mean, what's the worst-case scenario, for example? Well, I mean, one of the worst-case scenarios, for example, is in my book. 
transplant doctors at Cleveland Clinic realized that some of their patients after heart transplants were suffering organ rejection after being switched to an Indian-made generic immunosuppressant. They just couldn't control their symptoms. They couldn't be stabilized. And one of those patients died. So death is the worst-case scenario. Are doctors among the people who are most concerned about this? Some doctors really just don't think about this as an issue. But the doctors I've found who actually really are looking at this are the doctors that prescribe what are called narrow therapeutic index drugs. Those are drugs that require really precise dosing. So for cardiac patients and psychiatry, endocrinology, neurology, you know, seizure medication, you change that a little bit and you're going to have breakthrough seizures if you're an epileptic. I mean, those are sort of common complaints. And some of those medical associations have tried to lobby to say, look, their patients shouldn't be automatically switched to generics. Mm -hmm. They should be notified. How do they even figure out the generics are the culprit? Because often people think, oh, you know, for example, antidepressants or any kind of psychopharmacology, people say that, oh, the drugs stop working after a while. They work for some people. They don't work another. There are lots of outs. There are lots of explanations. Why would anyone stop to think it might be the generic version of a drug? Great question. So a lot of times they don't think about it, which is part of the problem. You know, but there are some doctors who are really close clinical observers who are watching patients that they stabilized suddenly become unstable, and then they're figuring out that that happened after a trip to the pharmacy in which they were switched to a different generic. And I describe in my book the story of Dr. Harry Lever at the Cleveland Clinic and how he began to not only diagnose his patients— but diagnosed the drug supply. And he began to observe, well, you know, when they're switched to this specific generic, I can't stabilize them anymore, so I've got to get them to a different generic. So, you know, some of the physicians are really observing this quite closely. Others, not so much. So if you're a patient, things you can do are, if you've been on a drug for a long time and you get a new version and it's suddenly not working, think about perhaps, is this a generic? Before you get prescribed something, do some research on who it is. How do you even figure that out from the bottle? The manufacturer name is on the dispensing label, mm -hmm. usually in like in New York State in little brackets, you know, sometimes hard to tell what's what. But, you know, that's a really important name to keep a hold of because, as you say, if it works, you want to stay on it. You don't want to get switched. But if it doesn't work, you do want to get switched. Then who do you get switched to? So... You know, I'd like to say that patients don't have to be investigative journalists to figure this all out. I do have a number of steps on my website that patients can take to literally investigate their own drugs. What about, this? these are some things that individuals can do, but if you were in charge of the system of the FDA, like, what would you do? How do we fix this? Number one, you end pre-announced inspections. Any manufacturing plant anywhere in the world that wants to import drugs into our market they need to be subject to unannounced inspections because otherwise they're just phony. That's an issue across all different industries, right? And not yeah. just generic I mean, drugs. look at the Boeing 737 and those MAX airplanes where Boeing was basically running the FAA inspections. Mm -hmm. So same thing, absolutely. I mean, it's for most people, that's just a no-brainer. I actually think that country of origin manufacturing should be on the dispensing label both for the active ingredient and the finished dose manufacturing. 
because it would really, you know, it would sharpen things up to get information to consumers. Maybe it would help shift some manufacturing back to the U.S. You know, we're beginning to see there's a couple of nonprofit drug manufacturers who want to manufacture in the U.S. You know, to me, that's a great model because we've got a pricing crisis and it's colliding with a, it's forcing us into these overseas manufacturers and we have a quality crisis. So country of origin labeling would help address that. And then I think we need, you know, price regulation as well. How would that help? Well, let's put it this way. If people could afford their brand name drugs, we wouldn't all have to be taking the, you know, Velveeta pharmaceutical from the lowest cost manufacturers, which we do now. We're reliant on them. This book came out in May, and it was an embargoed book, which means that it was sort of tightly controlled. You didn't spread it out to the media widely before publication because there were, there were some legal concerns and concerns that people would – there were a lot of vested interests here who might not be happy with this reporting. What has the reaction been since the book came out? And has anyone from the FDA had an official reaction? What have you seen so far? First of all, the reaction from patients and consumers has been immense. I mean, I am just – my inbox is flooded with patients who are concerned and also who feel like some of what they've experienced now makes sense to them in a way that it did previously. Have more whistleblowers come forward? Yes. So I've been contacted by a number of whistleblowers from sort of all areas of the pharmaceutical industry. I've been contacted by Congress. They do want to do something. We'll see if that happens. You know, I have been denounced online and trolled as India bashing, anti-India, because a lot of the book is set in India. And I've also received some quiet gratitude from a lot of Indian pharmaceutical executives who feel like, you know, the book is a wake-up call and a look in the mirror for the industry. Well, sounds like it's just the beginning of more, and there's a lot in here. The book, again, is called Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom by Catherine Eban. Catherine, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Lauren Christensen, Greg Coles, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hi, Pamela. All right, John, let's start with you. I'm reading a book – well, I finished a book that is so fantastic, so I'm going to rave about it. The reason I'm reading it, and I'll preview next week's podcast, is that the New York Times critics Dwight Garner, Paul Sagal, and Jen Salai just did this great project where they picked the 50 best memoirs published in the past 50 years. And in working with them on it a little bit, I started reading a lot of these books that they were considering that I hadn't read before. Some of them were ones that I wanted to read for a long time, and and this is one of those. It's called Minor Characters by Joyce Johnson. And Johnson was 21 years old. She had just recently, I think, graduated Barnard College in New York City, and she met Jack Kerouac through other people she knew. And so she essentially became an on-and-off-again romantic partner of Jack Kerouac right around the time that On the Road was published. And he Major became... strike. <laughs> well, Sorry. Well, no, no. This is sort of one of the reasons I'm so astonished by how much I love this book is because I never really went through a Beats phase. I read On the Road, and I think I wrote something about them in college at some point, but they never really spoke to me. I always found it a little bit grating, the entire culture of it. And this book is so clear-eyed, and it's so unlike them in terms of its style. And it's also not 
there's so many ways this could have gone wrong. One of them is that it could have just focused so much on the fact that she was in this orbit at this time. But it's so subtle. It's start, the first half of the book is really about her life growing up, her relationship with her mother, being in New York City at this time. If you love books that paint New York milieus, this is a good one for you because in the you know mid-century New York here really comes alive. And the luncheonettes. And the luncheonettes like yeah. and the sort of, yeah, the, the sort of pre-60s New York. And then when she does meet Kerouac and he does become famous, there's just no sense that she's writing about this because it's kind of culturally valuable to other people. It's very sophisticated, psychological Logically, she's a fantastic writer, and she gets into their relationship in ways that just feel completely genuine and real about two people. It doesn't matter that one of them is this kind of bold-faced name. And I just – the whole thing is is done almost perfectly, I think. I would say it's a, one of a handful of the best memoirs I've ever read. There's also a lingering sense that, that has stuck with me in the many years since I've read that book. Minor Characters – it's very much about the women in the Beats mm-hmm. orbit and how how masculine the whole Beat thing was. Oh, um, totally. And, and how secondary the women were, and yet how necessary also. Yes, and she has a, a good friend of hers who is involved, I think, with Allen Ginsberg on and off, or at least pines for him. And, and her story is kind of folded into the book as well, and she paints a great portrait of this very troubled but creative young woman. And yes, it, but even that, again, I keep coming back to this idea that it doesn't—the things that it pushes against— it doesn't do so in a way that feels score settling or even very self-conscious. It's just a very well-rounded look at the scene and about individuals. Yeah, incredibly lucid, beautiful writing and, and right, like you said, just this clear-eyed examination. Yeah, of herself her and these yeah. other people. And and it was published, I think, in 1983. So there's always there's also this perfect perspective on it where it was it was long enough after where she had you know thought about this and kind of put it together but it's not this autumnal looking back on my youth it's like that perfect <laughs> middle-aged perspective i was very happy to see that on the list of the critics 50 best yeah me too you're reading about a big life lauren <laughs> that, that is true i'm about 400 pages into the more than 3,000 and counting pages that uh, robert caro has written about lyndon johnson i mostly picked up this this book as a challenge to myself it is so far outside of my normal genre and Which so one is far, this? it's the first one, Path to Power. So I'm I'm going to start at the beginning. My my plan is to it might possibly be a long term background project, but so far this is this is the sole. And focus this is of your my first reading. Caro ever. It's my first Caro ever. I was drawn to it obviously by our and many others just really fantastic rave reviews of working. And I think so much has been said about his craft. And I think what's really drawn me into the book is, is is more the writing. I mean, I think he speaks so poetically about subjects that I just inherently wouldn't expect to find myself interested in. You know, I'm like, I, I brace myself for 50 pages on a dam building and I find myself totally <laughs> immersed in it. And and the background on Texas Hill Country and, and just how this is the story of Lyndon Johnson, but it's really the story of the founding of America and, and, and you know, mid century America. So it's just a very interesting look for me at, I think, a character portrayal. I love the part where Carrot compares Johnson to his father, and it's a real explanation of how to achieve power and what success really looks like. Because, you know, he says that whereas Sam Johnson, Lyndon's father, was an idealist, the son was really able to succeed because he was not imperiled by his morals. And it's it's really, you know, it sort of sets you up for what is to come, and it's just fascinating. You mentioned the Texas Hill Country. I saw him give a talk. He was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award at one of the National Book Award ceremonies. And he mentions that he told his wife and and kind of longtime companion, a researcher, helpmate, Ina, that he 
wanted them to relocate to they the Texas Hill Country so, so that he could learn more about this milieu where that, that was so central to LBJ. And she very gamely put their New York house on the market and, and started looking for a place to move there. But her response was, couldn't you have written about Napoleon or <laughs> something in Paris instead? <laughs> Didn't he say that he was going to go to Vietnam now for the final installment? Yeah, he, he was planning a trip yeah. last I heard. I, I hadn't heard that, but it, I mean, not to it relocate, does not surprise right, me. Right. Yeah. No, he wanted to know what it felt like for the young soldiers to be there. Exactly. Greg, you're reading something that is, I'm sure, moving much more quickly than the... Uh, yeah, much reference. more quickly than Caro. I'm reading a graphic novel called Here by the artist Richard McGuire. It is his first and only graphic novel. It came out five years ago, which surprised me a little to realize, but that also feels very appropriate, both that it was five years and that that feels like a surprise because time is very much the the point of this graphic novel. There's not so much a story to it, and it's, I guess, when when I talk about a graphic novel, you usually think of those as composed of panels, sequential, and this um, is not composed that way. It's It's more like a photo album where it's basically one picture per page, but overlaid on top of another picture. And you did a good job, but I'm just laughing over here because you really chose like the hardest book to describe <laughs> without showing it to it, someone it is, to talk about. It is about. such a visual medium, this book. I mean, it, it's really as much about the art or more about the art than it is about the narrative. And, and there's not so much a narrative per se. It's set entirely, it's called here, and and it's set entirely in what, for most of the book, is a, a corner of a living room in suburban New Jersey. But but it flashes back thousands of years, um, millennia, to, to, you know, to like primordial muck, and also <laughs> forward thousands of years where global warming has flooded um, the New Jersey coast. But most of it is set over a few decades in the mid-1900s through kind of present day, more or less, in this suburban house, which you feel is is probably the house that McGuire grew up in, in a corner of the living room. And you get the story of, of a family there. There are births and deaths. People come and go, jokes and family fights and things like that. But it's more a sense of time as a medium. And—, and what he does that's incredible, I, I say that it's like a photo album, but it's not sequential at all. It's it's like he's just shuffled the deck or like thrown all the photos up and let them fall. And then he, he kind of places them haphazardly on the page. And so you get the, the page that the book is open to right now is some Native Americans collecting maybe shellfish from the river in New Jersey in 1553 with a picture of a guy sleeping on the couch from 1992 <laughs> laid on top of that. And so the whole time that you're making your way through this, start to finish, you have to balance these different eras in mind, and you just get this enormous scope. I mean, it's, it's vertiginous trying to balance kind of everything that's happened there. And what it does, it shows you how rich time is and how rich, even with no real narrative, Looking over the the millennia, just how much it just can like go on in a feet. <laughs> exactly in this and tiny the tiny space. Treatment of the different time periods is so stark. They are um, beautiful. One of the things that that I like there, when it is the suburban house, the corner of the living room, you always get you know there's the couch, there's the window, there's the fireplace, and over the fireplace, in a lot of them, is a um, painting that is essentially a painting of this same place earlier in time. So it's it's a landscape with the forest and the river and the, you know, so he's... 
doing very smart things visually. Again, very hard to describe over audio. Well, and even sort of with the book in front of you, it's a very experimental book in some ways. You kind of have to immerse yourself in it to get what it's after. It's, you know, really an incredible work of art both as literature and as visual art. Pamela, what about you? What are you reading this week? I'm trying to find a common thread. The common thread between what Greg and I are reading is time travel. I'm reading four books at varying rates of speed. And I thought the one that I have most thoroughly read is another kind of work research type of book, which is what I talked about last week. And I thought I will not do that to listeners again. I'll talk about the thing I'm most excited to be reading, which is a new collection by Ted Chiang, Stories. The book is called Exhalation. It came out earlier this spring. And I'm a little embarrassed about how I came to this book in that his first collection was also a collection of stories, science fiction. And one of them was the basis of the movie Arrival. And I loved that movie. I've seen Mm -hmm. that movie now three times. I actually have plans to watch it again this weekend. No, I know. But the movie to book thing, I don't know. Uh, It's impure. (laughs) But So I've only read the first story in this collection. That story is called The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate, but was just really taken with it with his confidence as a writer and as a thinker. And he has these great story notes at the end of the collection that explain the sort of jumping off points, the basis in science and in sort of science fiction for each story. And this one, he says, came from something that a physicist named Kip Thorne gave a talk about in the mid-90s that he heard, in which he talked about that you could, in theory, create a time machine that obeys Einstein's theory of relativity, which is different from the way in which time machines are often portrayed in books and in film, and that essentially most representations of time travel assume that you can change the future by changing the past, you know, sort of butterfly effect. And in this case, you can't change the future. Your fate is set. And so what he does with this story is that he, because a tenant of Islam is acceptance of one's fate, he sets this in a kind of sort of Arabian tale type of setting. And it, it like an Arabian tale, is stories nested within stories. And it's a merchant telling his story to some authority, we don't know who, about coming across a store in which the store owner has one of these time machines that kind of consists of gates, where if you go through one side, you go 20 years into the future, and then you can go back through 20 years in the past. And this gate is in Baghdad, but there is another gate that's in Cairo. The gate in Baghdad, you can only go to the future. It's too new. It hasn't been around for 20 years, so you can't go to the past. You have to travel to Cairo to go through the past. And the merchant who owns this gate is telling the narrator stories of people who've gone through the gate before. And so each one kind of tells you something about the nature of fate and time. And one of the things that you can do, I always find this sort of part of time travel. I'm a time travel obsessive. Um, Like, (laughs) You know, there are certain people who hate time travel because they find it sloppy and inconsistent and easy, too easy. But I'm like a baby. I'm like fooled every time. I'm like, that's so cool. <laughs> like, think about what could happen. And so, like, whether it's a Star Trek movie or anything else, I just I love that idea. And I like the ways in which people play with like, well, could you see your future you or would that like be breaking the time travel continuum in some way? And like you could not 
encounter. There couldn't be two U's in one place. In this instance, there can be two U's, and there can also be objects associated with those U's. So you could go 20 years in the future, meet your 20-year-old older self, have a conversation, both be holding the same thing, and that's all consistent with the logic in the story. So I won't say any more about what happens, but that's where I am. So that's Ted Chiang's Exhalation. And Lauren, you're reading? The Years of Lyndon Johnson, The Path to Power by Robert A. Caro. I'm reading Here, a graphic novel by Richard McGuire. And I read Minor Characters by Joyce Johnson. All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, albeit not right away. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.